You can turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 9. We'll be considering this whole short chapter this morning, 2 Samuel 9. Uh, This is actually one of my very favorite uh, Old Testament narrative stories. And uh, that's the nice thing about getting to just come and fill in uh, on a one-off. You don't have to be going through a whole book or anything, but you can pick some of your favorites. And so uh, I picked one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament for us to look at this morning from 2 Samuel 9. And you'll notice the theme we're considering and thinking about God's kindness, the theme of kindness this morning. Let's read from God's holy word, 2 Samuel 9, starting in verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, the grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. Let's ask the Lord's help as we look to his word together. Heavenly Father, the opening and unfolding of your words gives light and understanding to the simple. We admit that in many ways we are simple in mind and we need you by your spirit to shine the light of your word into our dark hearts to reveal to us your riches and your ways for Jesus' sake. Amen. When we're considering an Old Testament narrative like this, a story, we want to make sure that we're thinking about it in the right way. And I thought just by way of opening that we'd start off with a slight hermeneutics lesson, okay? Hermeneutics is a fancy word for just saying, how do we interpret the Bible? And when you're reading the Old Testament, a lot of it is these stories. And it's a good question to ask yourself is, how ought we rightly think about these stories? How do we make relevant applications to our own life today? And if you want to answer a question like that, a good thing to do is to look at the New Testament. How are we commanded in Scripture to consider stories such as this? Well, I want to posit two things and two ways that we could look at a text like this. 
Uh, the first is that we look for examples of faith to imitate and sin to avoid. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, it's talking about all those wanderings in the wilderness that the people of Israel went under. And we're told that these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil as they did. That is, we're told through these stories to not do what they did. But conversely, we're told in Hebrews 6.12 to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see, the, these stories are also filled with examples of faith. We're given a bunch of examples in Hebrews chapter 11 of people that showed faith. Faith here that we are called to imitate. So we look at stories like this for examples of people like us, people who trusted in God to avoid sins and to follow their faith. And so we can consider that in the example of David as a believer, like one of us. But secondly, the Old Testament is filled with examples and illustrations of the work of Jesus. We know in John 5, 39, that Jesus said, these are the scriptures that testify about me. And in Luke 24, 27, he goes through Moses and the prophets and explains to the people with him everything that was about himself. And so David is an example of us as a believer to give us instruction, but David can also be an illustration or picture of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, he doesn't do this by virtue of just being a good, nice, awesome guy. No, David is only a picture of Jesus in the fact that he holds the office of a king. And when we're looking at individual people for examples of Jesus in the Old Testament, they don't represent Christ ever by themselves. They only ever represent Christ by the offices they hold. The three major positions or offices in the Old Testament are those of prophets, priests, and kings. And Jesus is the fulfillment of those three roles. And so whenever you see a priest, the priest, it can represent Christ. Whenever you see a prophet, a prophet represents Christ. And if you see a king like David, as we do today, there's a way that that represents Christ by virtue of him being a king. Okay, so David, we can apply this text to us as believers because David was a believer. But we can apply this text to Christ because David, as a king, represents Christ. Okay, and that's how we're going to consider it. We're going to spend the majority of our time looking at David's example of kindness, but also consider what this text tells us about God's kindness to us. And kindness is the theme we want to chase in our text. Uh, you could say lots of things about most parts of Scripture, but if you want to find a good theme, and this is a preacher's trick here, uh, you look for repeated words. That's a really easy one. And in our text, this idea of kindness pops up three different times. And so it's fitting for us to trace this theme of kindness in our text, David's kindness and God's kindness. Okay, look with me at verse one. David asks, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Okay, this is coming in David's life after a period where he's been in intense warfare for almost 20 years. He's been warring, it's been brutal, it's been an intense season of life, but things have settled down. There's a calm and there's relative peace in the kingdom. And as you can think in your own life, when you move from a season of just stress and anxiety and craziness, and you come to a calmer season, it's good to reflect, I have peace now, what are the, my duties? What would God ask of me in this season? We don't want to use seasons of comfort just to enjoy ourselves, 
but to consider how might now I bless others. And David considers such a thing here. He wants to show kindness to the house of Saul for Jonathan's sake. Jonathan, he was David's best friend. He was a war hero. He was a prince and future king. And him, along with his father, they died in battle. Now, interestingly, David and Jonathan are famous friends, but they actually weren't close in age at all. They were probably 25 or 30 years apart. So when they first met, Jonathan was probably 40, David about 15, and their friendship lasted until David was 30 and Jonathan closer to 60. This is an intimate friendship with people in very different ages and stages of life, which is very interesting. Don't let age differences um, limit your friendships. Now, David, he's being hunted by his best friend's dad. His best friend's dad, the king, wants to kill him. And David is getting ready to flee, and he's having a last meeting with Jonathan, and they make this pact together. And we read of this in 1 Samuel 20, verse 14. Jonathan's talking to his best friend David, and he says, May the Lord be with you, as he's been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness, like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as himself. Out of love for Jonathan, David makes a commitment to care for his family to show kindness to them evermore. And really, David's been sort of negligent in this oath. He spent 20 years not actively considering how he can keep his oath to Jonathan's family. But now he does, which is good. We, we read in verse two, David is looking for someone to show kindness to. We read there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? David actually doesn't know here. He doesn't know if there's anyone left of Saul's household. He might have thought they're all gone. Now we are going to meet the last one, Mephibosheth here. And it seems like David doesn't know about Mephibosheth. Uh, Mephibosheth was only five years old when his dad was killed in war. His dad was killed when he was five and it was common those days for a new king, like when David comes to the throne, it was common for them to eradicate all rivals. That is, every member of a former kingly line would be usually put to death. And so perhaps someone fearing this hid Mephibosheth from David and put him away um, to be out of the king's sight and to be safe. We're, we're not sure, but it doesn't seem like David knows about him here. And so David is looking. He's looking for an opportunity to show kindness to Saul's house. But it's interesting in verse 3 that he specifies what sort of kindness he wants to show. He says, is there anyone left to whom I can show God's kindness? He believes that the kindness he will show will actually be showing God's kindness. And this word kindness here is a very important word in Scripture. It's the Hebrew word chesed. And this is a word that is hard to translate. Uh, it sometimes gets translated as mercy or loving kindness or faithful love, uh, steadfast love, because there's really two parts to it. There's an aspect of loyalty and faithfulness and covenant commitment, 
but there's also an aspect of love and kindness and tenderness. And this is the word that's translated three times in our text as kindness. Now, this is not the sort of word that you would use to show kindness to a passing stranger. This isn't a sort of random act of kindness. Uh, But, um, and I quote here, the word is used only in cases where there is some recognized tie between the parties concerned. It's not used um, indiscriminately of kindness in general, haphazard or kindly deeds. So it's a kindness shown in relationship. That is, we might call it a continuing kindness or a consistent kindness. That is, it's a commitment to the ongoing good of the other. David's committed to showing an ongoing kindness to the house of Jonathan. Now, uh, I'll try to, uh, boys and girls, you guys might understand this. If you've ever, have you ever wanted a dog? Your parents maybe get you a, a puppy from the shelter. And you think, I, it would be really nice to do something nice for a dog. Maybe you've had a friend and you fed the dog a treat and you're like, that was really awesome. Um, but you say, if you take the dog in, you're going to have to continually care for it. You're going to have to be walking it and feeding it and cleaning up after it. It's much easier to just walk your friend's dog once a month, but to have your own to care for every day, that's the sort of uh, call here. It's a continuing kindness where you're invested in the ongoing care and good of another. And David is willing to commit himself to this sort of ongoing care for Jonathan's household. He asks, is there no one left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? How will David be showing God's kindness when he's just doing something himself? Well, we can think about this in a couple different ways. First, it's a recognition here that David knows that he's not the source of kindness himself. God is the one that produces true uh, God-like kindness in his heart. And so God is the source of his kindness. But secondly, uh, he recognizes, as do we, that God shows us his kindness through others. That is, God uses instruments and means to be conduits of his grace and kindness. But thirdly, and I think importantly here, is that as a believer, as one who has taken on the name of God and committed to serving him, everything David does is as a representative of one of God's people. And everything he does is either positively or negatively going to reflect on the God that he serves. When he reflects God well, God is honored. As an image bearer, when he images God's true character well, God is glorified. And so by showing kindness, David is displaying and reflecting the sort of kindness he himself has received from God. He's communicating the heart and character of God to the object of kindness. And God's kindness is shown whether the recipient recognizes it to be a coming from and through God or not. God's kindness is shown by his image bearer and in that God is glorified. Now, why is this important for us? This is really important to understand because it means that our acts of kindness when done as a believer in acknowledgement of God, they glorify God in and of themselves, regardless of the results. Regardless of whether it leads to someone else glorifying God, God is glorified by his kindness being reflected. In Matthew 5, 44, Jesus says, love your enemies 
and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So consider this. Here we're told that God does good things. God shows the kindness of sun and rain that uh, you farmers and gardeners know help make your crops grow. God sees it fit to show his kindness to people he knows will never believe in him. He sees it fit to show his kindness to those that will never accept him. And therefore, we ought to be ready to follow God's example and understand that our showing kindness to others glorifies God and pleases God, regardless of the results. And so, yes, rightly, we want to um, speak and communicate of God's kindness and goodness to the world, but it is good in and of itself to show and reflect and image God's kindness to the world. And therefore, like David, we ought to be actively seeking opportunities to reflect and display God's kindness. David could have been content to not know if there was anyone left of the house of Saul, but he seeks, he asks, and inquires, to whom can I show God's kindness? His heart is ready to show God's kindness. And so ought we. We ought to be so transformed by the kindness of God in our lives that we're just ready to pour out his kindness to those who might receive it. It's kind of like if, you, if you've ever traveled and seen a big dam holding back water, and then they occasionally open those um, floodgates and the water rushes down. We want our hearts so full of kindness that the first opportunity, they can open up and show grace and kindness to others. David's looking for an opportunity and he finds one. He finds an opportunity in the person of Mephibosheth. We read in verse three, Ziba answered the king saying, there is still a son of Jonathan, but he's crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asks. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. Here's gonna be the object of kindness, Mephibosheth. And notice that Ziba here doesn't even give him the honor of naming him. He doesn't even say his name. He just basically calls him the cripple. He says he's crippled in both feet. Uh, it seems Ziba looks down on him. Um, He's disabled. Mephibosheth is the last disabled son of the former king. Uh, he's not able to care for himself, and so he's being taken care of at the house of Machir, um, who seems like he was a kind man. Later on, we'll see he's going to show kindness to David when him and his men are um, in the wilderness. Ziba looks down on Mephibosheth, this disabled person, but David isn't for a moment dissuaded. He seeks him out. David brought him from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. And it, it seems here like Mephibosheth actually might be frightened. He might be worried that he's the last one who's probably going to get killed by the new king. And that's, it seems why David says in verse 7, don't be afraid. Okay, he, he was afraid. So David says, don't be afraid. I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Wow, what, what a turnaround here. David says, no, I'm not gonna do your, you harm. I'm gonna do you kindness. And David commits to showing Mephibosheth kindness in two different ways. The first is by way of restoration. He says, I will give you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. 
So these were probably the king's lands that had passed with the crown to David and were now under David's ownership. David says, I'm going to restore to you all this crown land. I'm gonna provide for you. And more than that, I'm gonna give you people to work the land, Ziba and his servants. Um, We see in verse nine, the king summoned Ziba and said, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. So this is sort of a tenant-farmer relationship. Uh, If you've ever seen something like Downton Abbey, you know you have the uh, masters of the house, but then you have all these farmlands that they owned. And different farmers are working the land, and they're taken care of by the estate, but they are working the estate. This is going to be the new arrangement. Mephibosheth is going to be now the manager of this large estate with 20 servants and the 15 sons of Ziba all working the land to provide for him. And imagine this, moving from being taken care of by some other man, he's now managing a state with people under him. As a a cripple, he's not able to farm the land himself, but he can manage, he can oversee. And this is the arrangement David's given to him. It's an ennobling arrangement. This is such a great blessing for for Mephibosheth to be able to move into productivity. And he's providing for him for his future provision, He's providing for him here vocationally and financially, giving him meaningful work. And one thing I often think is just, we often don't appreciate um, how valuable it is to be able to provide employment for others. To come to the state where you have provided not just for your own family, but you're now able to provide for the families of others through providing them a meaningful, ennobling employment, that's an incredible blessing to give. And that's a kindness that you can show to others. Uh, Is it more stressful having employees? Yes, it is. Is it extra work? Yes. But we're we're reminded in Proverbs 14.4 that you could easily complain that why bring oxen to the farm? They make everything dirty and take extra work to look after. But he says much increase comes from the strength of the ox. To give yourself, to be able to provide for others' families is an incredible kindness you can show them. David provides for Mephibosheth financially and vocationally. But more than that, he provides for him relationally. He said, you will always eat at my table. Now, this isn't a charity eat at my table, because remember, he has land now. He doesn't need to eat at David's table for food. This is all about relationship. He's being welcomed to the king's table. The only people there are the very highest of the land passing through, and the family. He's being welcomed to the king's table it were told like one of his sons. David's brought the grandson of his greatest political opponent into his family circle. This again is such an honor, such an ennobilizing good done to Mephibosheth. He's not kept at arm's length, um, a disgraceful secret, a, just a disabled person he's helping on the side, but he's welcomed to his very table. And Mephibosheth didn't do anything to deserve being there. It was kindness shown by the king. He shows kindness both materially and relationally. I think we often forget about this relational component to our kindness. Uh, It's much easier to just give and stay separate and stay out of uh, the mess, but to be able to give ourselves to this continuing kindness where kindness is shown in relationship is a wonderful good to welcome others to our family table, 
Many of us here have been blessed with wonderful, stable, beautiful home lives. And to be able to welcome others into that is a wonderful gift. We're to show God's consistent kindness in the lives of others. And how does Mephibosheth respond in verse eight? He bows down and says, what's your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? He responds in humility in a sort of polite way, but really he's astonished at the grace the king is giving him. He's astounded that this is what the result has been. And so the conclusion of the story is a happy one. Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. So he gets married. He has a son. All the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. He's in the capital city because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. We're reminded of that again at the very end. Mephibosheth ends in a joyful state. He has his people. He has a place. He has work and an estate, not through his own merits, but through this wonderful kindness that David has shown him. A sort of kindness that we're called to emulate, to look for opportunities to show the kindness of God to others. Uh, but there's an important caveat here, something I think we do well to consider, is that when we're considering doing kindness to others, it's far too easy to consider it um, as a higher to lower transaction. Ah, uh, yes, that's, that, that's right, preacher. I ought to show kindness to these poor, uh, pitiful people around me. And yes, it'll be so good for them if they can just have me and be welcomed to my family. I will give myself for them and I will be doing the right thing. I will be reflecting God's kindness. And yes, they are blessed that they have me in their life. How do we avoid that sort of attitude, sort of condescension to the weaker? We avoid that mindset when we recognize that we are all Mephibosheth. We all come into this world crippled by sin, crippled and corrupted and not able to ever work our way to pay back our way to God. We're crippled. We can't work enough good works to get back in God's good graces. We were actually, like Saul, actively God's enemies. We're naturally set at at enmity against the true king and rightly deserving his wrath. But God, as a good and gracious king, far from uh, kicking us down, he actively seeks us out. He actively sought us out to show us kindness through Jesus. We're told how Jesus seeks that lost sheep, the one who's straying, who goes to the depths to raise them up out of the pit, how he condescended from heaven to be made like unto us, to receive our limitations of human flesh, that he might bring us back to God. He knows our weaknesses and our pains. We're told that the rich one becomes poor for us so that through his poverty, we might be made rich. He shares the riches of all his Um, all his own with us. He provides for us far more than David provides for Mephibosheth. He provides for us a father, the son and the spirit. He provides for us the church, the kingdom of God. And he provides for us an eternal inheritance that won't spoil or fade away. But more than providing for us all this, he provides for us relationship. God brings us to himself through Jesus. He welcomes us to his family table and says, you are my son, you are my daughter, you will always eat at my table. 
That's the heart of God to sinners like us. Even though we're crippled, he says, you will always eat at my table. Like one of my family, right there, sitting beside my son, Jesus Christ, you are always welcome. Yes, I know you're crippled. Yes, I know you're sinful. Yes, I know you're weak and forget me and stray constantly. But you're sitting at my table, not because you earned your way here and you walked here. I carried you. I took your limp legs in my arms and I brought you to my table. I said, you're gonna sit with me now and forever. And that's this beautiful truth that's pictured every time we receive of the Lord's Supper. Every time we receive of this table, we're reminded that we're there because Jesus brings us near to God the Father. And God the Father doesn't bring us there because he has to, but because he desired to show us kindness in Christ. And so it's okay that you don't have it all together. It's okay that you're still struggling with the same sins you were struggling with 15 years ago because you are welcomed to the table through Jesus. Yes, we wanna live for him. Yes, we want to obey him. Yes, we want to respond with hearts of love and obedience to all God's commands, but we never forget that we are there because we're his children now. We've been made children of God, welcomed to the King of Kings to eat with him now and forever, to eat and be at the marriage supper of the lamb with Christ himself, wearing his white robes of righteousness, not our own. And when we really understand just how much kindness God has showed us in Jesus, that's where that heart to show kindness in return comes from. We're told in 1 John 4, 19, that we love because God first loved us. He's the first lover. In Ephesians 5, 1, we're told to follow God's example as dearly beloved children and to walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We're always responding to the love that we've first received. And so the cross is the great leveler. We're no better than anyone to whom we'd show kindness. We all need God to heal us and carry us to his table. And so let's reflect that kindness of God in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your goodness and mercy know no bounds. We can try with our minds to know the unknowable and incomprehensible love of Christ, but it passes knowledge. Lord, would you show us the depths of your mercy towards us? how willing you are to invite us cripples to your table, how willing you are to provide for us and to give us yourself. For you've already given us your son. And if you would give us your son, how will you not also give us all things in him? Lord, would you astound us with the wonders of all that you've done for us? Would you astound us with the wonders of the kindness you've shown and help us to show your kindness to all we meet? For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray, amen.